Well, good morning, friends, and welcome to 1030 Worship. It is so good to gather together. For those of you who are just coming in, I mentioned at the beginning before we welcomed in new members that Jeff and I just uh, spent about seven days away. We gathered with uh, 35 or so other pastors from our denomination, and it was a really rich time together. And like many conferences, we're coming back with our heads just exploding with ideas and where to start, but but it was, it was so good. And um, we're so glad that we are back with you. This is home, and so it is good to be home. And if this is your first time here at Paz Naz this morning, we are so glad that you are here. And if you are engaging online, we are glad that you are engaging with us online. As we continue our series that we've been on over the last few weeks called The Good Life, and I think I can speak for most of us pastors uh, that we have just been really hopeful expect it and excited about this series, The Good Life, as, as today we get to unpack what it means to be a faithful people of God. And the next week we're going to look at wisdom and then gratitude, and then it's hard to believe after that it's going to be Ash Wednesday already. And then we'll begin our new Lenten series. So just a couple more weeks and Easter's around the corner. Hard to believe. Well, before we dig in uh, this morning, let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. Living Lord, we thank you for this very unique and countercultural thing that we do on Sunday mornings. And that when we do this, it's not in vain. Because when we gather, you are here moving, working, and ministering to us. You're chiseling away at the clutter in our hearts and minds, you're forming us into your likeness. So God, I pray that it would not be in vain, but that our hearts would be so open to you, soft. Pray that we would be so surrendered that you would indeed have your way in us and through us so that when we leave this place, we are so encouraged, so formed, so nourished that the world sees you in us and the ways that we live and the ways that we speak the glory of your name. Have your way, Lord. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. This year, Jeff and I have been married for 12 years, and for many of you, that sounds like we just got married, but in some ways, it also feels like a lifetime of marriage. I can hardly imagine my life before Jeffrey Daniel Leach. And after 12 years of marriage, like many marriages, we have our ups and our downs. I'd like to say that all of it is all mountaintop wonderful experiences, but anyone who is married can testify that marriage is is, is ups and downs. Sometimes sometimes we drive each other crazy, and then other times uh, we love just playing together and playing jokes on each other. Uh, One of my favorite things to do is to jump out and scare Jeff and catch it on video. Uh, We just have a strange marriage. We love to play practical jokes on one another. But marriage is an interesting thing. When you start to spend time with someone, you you begin to talk alike. You you begin to have similar inside jokes. And and there's so many similarities. But there's also, it's just something so profound about bringing two people with two different backgrounds, with two different thought patterns or whatever it might be together to become one. And even through those, those valley moments. You see, when Jeff and I, we stood in my parents' backyard where we got married in a gazebo on a 40-acre farm. And when we said, I do, 
We made this covenant together that was a covenant so strong and so profound that we were saying yes and, and saying no to anything that would rival that faithfulness to one another. Anyone who has been married before would, would be able to relate that, that yes so strong that is it to, to no to anything that would get in the way of that, that that's work. It's a lot of really hard work. It, this faithfulness is, is more than just being committed to one another and no one else, but this faithfulness is, is how you live towards one another. It's submitting to one another out of fear and reverence for Christ. It looks like attentiveness, listening, communicating, spending time with one another, being one another's biggest cheerleaders and encouragers, and it's not always easy. Jeff and I, I believe we have a wonderful marriage. And also, we are polar opposites. He is a left-brain JPL engineer, and I am a complete right-brain artist. And I remember um, this became so apparent when we were registering for uh, wedding presents when we were engaged. We stood there in a bed, bath, and beyond. And me, I just wanted to take that little register gun and just, if it looked good, let's get it. But Jeff stood there and, and analyzed every single product. He was trying to figure out the dimensions and the weights and, and weighing out the pros and cons in his brain. And I'm thinking, this is crazy. Just, 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 just get it. But he was an engineer and he couldn't just do that. And so there's, there's always surprises and you bring two people that are radically different uh, from one another. And sometimes marriage isn't easy. Sometimes it feels like oil and water. But there is something so beautiful, something so profound and even countercultural to say, we're stuck with one another, no matter what. And in today's world, this thing called faithfulness or fidelity is becoming more and more of a countercultural idea. Not only in marriage, but even as a gathered people, as a covenant community, as a people of God. And this thing called faithfulness and fidelity is not just a human thing, but actually it originates in God. It begins with God. We see this in the Old Testament in the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth, and it did not take very long for humanity to take a turn for the worse, if you will. In the beginning, God illustrated. He, he gave Adam and Eve, he gave humanity this incredible, beautiful vision of what the good life is. And Adam and Eve, they took a look at the good life, and they decided that an alternative way to the good life was better. And we see this over and over again as humanity moves away from God's vision of the good life. What does God do? God moves in. God pursues. And then we see God making this thing called covenants with the people of God, beginning with Abram, where God promised that there would be a people of God so great that they would be a holy nation, they would be a royal priesthood, they would be a chosen people. And God covenanted with them that no matter what, God would always be their God. And we see time and time again, as God is moving in in acts of grace and love and restoration and covenant, and God is painting this vision of what the good life is, the people of God will say, yes, we're in, but then what do they do? They live as though they aren't in. And this becomes the theme throughout much of the Old Testament. 
God deepening covenants, God expanding covenants, and God calling the people of God to live as a covenant people, meaning living within the boundaries of the good life that God set before them. And by living in the boundaries of this good life, the world would be able to peer into the covenant community and see what God is like and see what the good life is like. And so we see this difficult back and forth theme between the people of God and between God. God setting the demands of this covenant and the people of God moving away from that. And this is so just almost painfully illustrated in a book called Hosea. Many of you have maybe read the book Hosea, but it's a painful book to read as God calls this prophet by the name of Hosea to marry a prostitute, which is at first glance so strange. And so Hosea obeys and marries this prostitute, and at first things are glorious and wonderful and romantic until they have their firstborn. And suddenly his wife, Gomer, abandons the covenant that they made together and begins to pursue rival visions of the good life. And Gomer, or Hosea, however, continues to pursue her. The more she rejects him, the more that she runs, the closer that Hosea pursues her. And he even purchases her from slavery, brings her back home, restores her, and loves her. And why? You see, Hosea, we can't read it as though this is a biography of Hosea's life. But God is communicating something here about the covenant relationship that he has, the very painful covenant relationship that he has with the people of God in the Old Testament. In fact, God says this. He says, when the Lord first began speaking to Israel through Hosea, he said to him, go marry a prostitute so that some of her children will be conceived in prostitution. This will illustrate, God is communicating something here. He says, this will illustrate how Israel has acted like a prostitute by turning against the Lord and worshiping other gods. In other words, God is illustrating this really painful, at times tumultuous relationship that we see throughout Scripture in the Old Testament. God is pursuing a people who are constantly rejecting God's vision of the good life, constantly turning their back, and constantly worshiping rival gods. We see this right away in the beginning when God rescues the people of God from the impressive grips of Pharaoh. He parts the Red Sea, and as soon as they're in the desert and they give boundaries to live by, what do they do? They start worshiping another god. They start worshiping a golden calf. And then as the story unfolds, we see the people of God beginning to worship this God called Baal, the God of fertility. And then in the text that we're going to look at today in Joshua, we see that they begin to pursue other rival gods known as the God of the Amorites. And this is the painful and difficult theme. They constantly are turning their backs and constantly choosing an alternative vision of the good life. In fact, in Hosea, God calls them this. He calls the people of God a promiscuous wife an indifferent mother, illegitimate child, ungrateful son, stubborn heifer, silly dove, luxuriant vine, and grapes in the wilderness. And so the theme throughout scripture is God's relentless faithfulness. God is faithful no matter what. God pursues. God redeems. God extends God's grace and love, and the people of God don't always accept it. We see this back 
and forth, back and forth. And what's happening here is the people of God, although God is giving them this vision of the good life through the boundaries of the law, this gift of the law, they, they take a look at God's version of the good life and they see what everybody else is doing. And they look at that and they say, well, that, that just seems a little bit more appealing, that version of the good life. And the call to faithfulness, to live in relationship with a faithful God in the New Testament today even, is no different. You see, oftentimes when we like to talk about the Christian faith, we, we use this word faith. We say, yeah, I, I'm, I practice a faith. I have faith. I have faith in Christianity. But when we begin to get underneath this word faith in both the Old Testament and New Testament, we discover that this idea of having faith in a God or having faith in, in Jesus Christ is something that is beyond an intellectual exercise. It's something that is also beyond a one-time moment. But to say that one has faith in the Christian God or faith in Christian or faith in, in Christian or in Jesus is, is to say that I am also faithful. Faith and faithfulness, you can't separate them. Faith is demonstrated. Faith is lived out. It is a lifestyle of obedience. It's not just an isolated act. It's not just about memorizing certain things that we read about theology or doctrine, but it's something that is practiced and lived out, which is why the Apostle Paul in in Galatians, when he talks about fruits of the Spirit, he says faithfulness is one such fruit. For those of us who are walking in the power of the Holy Spirit, for those of us who have faith, who confess Jesus Christ as Lord, and as we walk in the Holy Spirit, faithfulness is a byproduct of the Christian life. Faithfulness to God is, and one another, faithfulness is a byproduct of what it means to have life in the Spirit. And so I wonder if this prophet Joshua were to come back and visit the New Testament church, or to visit the church of 2018, the North American church. I wonder what his observations of faithfulness would be today. I wonder if today he would still be a weeping prophet. I wonder if today he will, what he would call the rival gods in our midst, the rivaling narratives of the good life, the di- different versions or the different visions of the good life that are separate or different from the good life as illustrated in God's kingdom. What would be his observations? What would he declare are our rival gods? At the beginning of the series, we've been looking a lot at a scholar by the name of James K.A. Smith, and we took a look at this quote. James K.A. Smith contends that we actually are what we love. We become what we love. And he says, it is our desires that orient and direct us towards some telos we take to be the good life, the version of the kingdom we live toward. To be human is to be a lover and to love something ultimate. And in the book of Joshua, this is exactly what's, what's going on. They have a vision and a version of the good life. They love something ultimate. But the problem for Joshua is they weren't loving Yahweh. They weren't living into the version or the vision of the good life that is rooted in their God, Yahweh. And instead, their vision of the good life was rooted in the God of Baal, the God of the Amorites, and so on. 
And so James K.A. Smith says those things that we call ultimate, those rivaling versions of the good life, those rivaling visions of, of a God of this world or those rival gods, we actually begin to orient our heart and our habits and our attitudes and the things that we do towards that vision so much so that we eventually become it. And some of us here this morning have versions of the good life that is totally rooted in the kingdom of God, as we read about here in the scriptures and the grand narrative of scripture. And then other of us, we kind of have a strange mixture of both. We try to blend it together. Some of us have versions of the good life that is a strange mixture of the good life that we find in scripture, but also rivaling visions of the good life. And we have a really hard time separating them out. Because as James K.A. Smith contends, he says some of these visions of the good life that are beginning to do something to our hearts, our understanding, our minds, and our, our vision, this is, it's happening underneath. And we don't even realize what it is actually doing us. And some of those visions is leading us down a path away from faithfulness to God. And we don't even know it's happening because it's happening underneath and, and how we are living. And it is pulling us away and it is turning our hearts away from Christ that is the true north. And before we know it, we are becoming a vision of the good life that is, looks nothing like what we read about and hear. In fact, I wonder if some of the prophets or even the apostles, if they were to come back today and they were to look at our vision of the good life that you and I are living into, I wonder if they'd be confused. I wonder if they'd be confused of the ways that we are organizing our lives and, and the habits that we are creating to orient our hearts towards the good life, which ultimately is chiseling our hearts away from faithfulness in Christ, which then shapes our habits. As we talked about, so much of this is happening under the radar in our hearts. We, we can't even see it. Smith tells a story about two young fish that are swimming. And they pass up an older fish. And the older, wiser fish looks at the two young fish and says, Good morning, boys. How's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a couple minutes. And finally, one of the younger fish says, What's water? In other words... We are immersed in things. We are immersed in practices and in habits that are chiseling away at our minds and our hearts and that are pointing us and pushing us and pulling us towards a very rivaling understanding of the good life that looks nothing like what we read about in scripture. And we are so immersed in it. We are so deep in it. We are swimming in it. It is everywhere that we don't even know what it is that we are immersed in. We can't even see the very things that we are doing that are chiseling away at our hearts and eventually as we are immersed in swimming and our heart is being chiseled or collecting clutter our faithfulness begins to diminish dwindle and wane now it's important to mention that everything that we do is not all bad the, the call this morning is not to, to 
leave Pasadena, find 40 acres, get a horse and buggy, and just get out of the world and find an alternative lifestyle. That's not who we are. Even the Apostle Paul talks about being in the world, but not of the world. In other words, stepping into the world with eyes wide open, with an open and surrendered heart, completely aware of the rival visions of the kingdom of God, the rival visions of the good life, the rival visions of these alternative gods that are pulling away at our faithfulness. And the call this morning is to be able to name the things that are water, to be able to name the things that we are immersed in, and to be able to name what these things are actually doing to us how it's shaping our habits, how it's shaping our vision and imagination. Because so much of what we are swimming in, the only thing that they are interested in is capturing your love and attention. And so with that in mind, I'd like to lead you through a little bit of an exercise. And you can try this a little bit more when you get home. I want you to start taking notes of the things that you are immersed in and the habits that you're doing, the routines that you are doing, the places that you go, the things that you are looking at, and begin to ask, what is it doing to me? How is it painting an alternative vision of the good life that rivals the good life that is rooted in Scripture? I want to invite you to close your eyes for a moment. Bow your heads. I want you to imagine with me. Imagine first a magazine, any magazine that you tend to read, Imagine as you are flipping through the pages, what captivates your imagination? How does the magazine define you? How does the magazine define happiness or beauty or success? Or imagine turning on the television you turn on the television, scrolling through commercials, what captivates your imagination? What is the invitation? What compels you? How do the commercials define happiness, beauty, success? How does it define you? Or think about stepping and turning on the news. Whatever news station you watch, what does the news tell us is the way and the path to the good life? What captivates your imagination? What's the invitation? What compels you? How do they define beauty and success? How does it define you? Imagine for a moment stepping into the mall with the stores, the smells, the windows. What is the good life according to the mall? What captivates your imagination? What does the mall define as happiness, beauty, and success? And how does it define you? Or finally, think about social media. We're scrolling through our news feeds daily. What is a good life according to the news feed? How does it captivate your imagination? How does it tell you to define happiness? Does it tell you that you are the center of the world and you're better off, more successful, more beautiful, more worthy, the more likes that you get? How does it continue to define that you are at the center of the universe? You see, you can open your eyes. These are the very things that we are swimming in. 
And this is just a fraction of the world that we are swimming in. These are the very things that we are immersed in that are shaping and chiseling and forming our vision of the good life. I love one more James K.A. Smith quote. I love the way that he talks about it here. He says, these things, they bend the needle of our hearts. And these things that we do, he calls them liturgies. Think of habits, the things that we participate in. He thinks that we do. He says, they are disordered. And they are aimed at rival kingdoms. They are pointing us away from the true north that is Christ. And they are chiseling away. They are deforming our hearts from the truly human life in Christ that you and I were created to live. And it gives us a rival understanding of the good life. Think for a moment. Let's, let's begin with our own brokenness. All of us are born with a sense of brokenness. And, and the maw will tell you, that healing comes from consumption, buying more. Social media will tell you that healing comes when you are at the center of the universe and the more likes that you get. The news will tell you that healing and wholeness will come through proper politics and the right president. And again, these, these things that we are swimming in, that we are immersed in, these habits that we are participating, and they are all bad. The call, however, is to wake up and to acknowledge the things that are rivaling us away towards Christ and are shaping a very rival understanding of the good life. This is why this series of good life is so important to us. The habits, the ways that we order our life, the things that we do when we wake up in the morning, the prayers that we say throughout the day, the ways that we walk through our culture with eyes wide open, they are so important because then it begins to form and shape and cast the great vision of the good life that Jesus came to seek and to live and to die for and he was raised to new life for, to give us the good life rooted in the kingdom. And so knowing then, knowing that we are swimming, we are immersed in narratives, false narratives, rivaling narratives of the good life. What are the habits then that we can do to practice faithfulness? You see, these practices, these liturgies, these things that we are putting in your bulletin, encouraging you to do are critical to living into the kingdom vision of the good life. Because as we do them, as we practice these things, little by little, our hearts begin to shape and be formed and oriented towards the good vision, the true vision of the good life. And so we encourage you to take a look at some of these things. But the habit that I want to lift up today might seem like I'm preaching to the choir, but maybe not. Probably one of the most important habits that you and I can have in our lives that orient us into a life of faithfulness in Christ is actually what we are doing right now. Right here. A very countercultural thing in 2018 to give up an hour and a half on a Sunday morning and to gather. But when we gather every single moment, from the moment that you walk into the thresholds of those doors, from the moment you take a seat and you begin to sing, something is happening to us. Our hearts are being shaped. Our vision is being expanded. Our imagination is being expanded into God's vision of the good life. See, when you come in and you stand up, we begin to sing and we begin to worship. And as we are singing and as we are worshiping, our hearts are being shaped 
into good theology. And we, remind, we are reminded as we sing that we are not the center of the universe, but that God is the center of the universe. And as we are singing and worshiping together, the spirit begins to chisel away and remove the clutter and dirt at our heart that we have collected all week. And then after singing some, we stand up and we pass the peace and we begin shaking the hands. And this moment is so much more than just a grip and grim moment. But when we turn around and we shake someone's hand and we look at them in the eye, we are reminded that when we come into this space, it's not just about me and God but it is about the people of God gathering. And when we look at one another in the eyes, we are reminded that we together are all created in the image of God and that this Christian life is not a solo climb. And then we do this crazy thing where we pass these plates and we invite you to participate in this weird thing called tithes and offerings. That moment is so much more than just us saying we need to pay the bills. My goodness, we're missing out if that's how we view that. But that moment of responding is actually an act of worship. And that's not just a modern idea. When we read the Old Testament and into the New Testament, we see that generosity is an act of worship and that how we spend our money and how we respond in that moment actually exposes something about our heart. And it exposes the very things that we love. It exposes the things that we call ultimate. And it exposes the vision that we have of the good life just in the simple ways of how we spend our money. And then we stop for a moment and we pray corporately and we put all these names up here on the screen and people come forward at the altars and as we do that that moment is actually doing something to us as we remember that when we walk into this place there are needs in the community and we believe as we lift up these names to the throne room we believe that God has the power to heal and that God is the one that heals and then I come up to the pulpit and I begin to read these old, ancient words from scripture. And, and as we do this and as we proclaim the good news, we begin to paint the picture. We begin to illustrate of God's vision of the good life. Because when we walk into this place, we might be confused. We might be disoriented. We might be unsure of, of what is God's vision of the good life and what is the world's vision of the good life. But then when we posture ourselves in surrender and we sit at the feet of Jesus, who is here because of the fellowship of the Trinity, our version and vision of the good life is nourished and we are strengthened and then we come together and we break bread and we pass around these strange wafers and we sip from these strange cups and as we do that we have this distinct way of eating we are reminded of the faithfulness of king jesus of his life his death and his resurrection we are reminded of the broken body and the blood pour out and we are reminded that jesus will return again and then after that we do this thing where i come forward and i stand right here and i put my arms up and i do this strange thing called a benediction and as i do that benediction those aren't just words but those are words that we believe that God is empowering you and sending you back into the world where you're going to begin to collect all of this clutter and all of these versions of the good life and we are believing that you are going in the power of the Holy Spirit so that when you return here by Saturday you are practically crawling into this place because you have collected so many alternative and rivaling narratives of the good life that you need to come and be nourished and allow the spirit of the living God to to begin to point your heart back to the true north and to give you that vision and that nourishing vision of the good life. What we do in here 
does something to you. And it points that heart back to the kingdom vision of the good life. You see, faithfulness, to have faith, it's lived out. It's practiced. It's something that we do. And stats tell us, oh, I just heard some troubling stats this week. Stats tell us that Christians are, are living into the rivaling visions of the good life. It's hard to stat. The Church of the Nazarene right now is having meetings on how to, how to count attendance. Because one of the things that they're discovering that is very different from 20 years ago is that the average Christian comes to church 1.4 times a month. And that's not to condemn. But just that settle in as we think about how we are swimming in these rivaling narratives. In fact, they're even talking about maybe we should just count Easter Sunday because Easter Sunday is no longer just a community, but it's just your people all showing up together on one Sunday. I don't know about you, but my kingdom imagination of the good life would get really confused and diminished and weak if I could only come 1.4 times a month. You see, faithfulness is something that is done, that is lived out, and is practiced. It's like this. What if I told you this? Hey, I'm a bodybuilder. Oh yeah, I'm a big time bodybuilder but I don't really go to the gym. Like once a month, you know, I'll pump some irons. I don't like to go because, you know, that when I have to go to the gym, there's just so many other stuff that I would rather be doing. I mean, catch up on bills, rest, put my feet up. And then there's that, that thing called, you know, you have to eat healthy. That's just too much work. But, oh, but I am a bodybuilder. I am a big-time bodybuilder. I really believe in bodybuilding. I read everything I can about bodybuilding try to learn it and memorize like all the techniques. In fact, I'm the expert on bodybuilding, but when it comes to bodybuilding, yeah, just not feeling it. Do you see? Faithfulness is practice. And you and I, as we gather, we are practicing, we are being formed, we are being shaped. And we are practicing for what we will someday do as citizens of heaven. And God the Spirit is shaping and chiseling and decluttering because I don't know about you, but I need you more than 1.4 times a month. And you need me more than 1.4 times a month. And we need you more than 1.4 times a month. And you need us more than 1.4 times a month. I need to practice my faithfulness with you in the presence of God together because without practice, it will diminish. Let us pray. God, we thank you that even as conviction steps in, as your spirit is stirring in us, and we feel those moments of conviction, it's not met with guilt or condemnation, but it's met with grace. 
The kind of grace that chisels away at our hearts, that forms us, and that points our heart back to the true north that is Jesus. So God, we walk in this place weary. How could we not? We walk in this place with cluttered visions of the good life. We walk in this place confused, but as we gather together as the people of God, every single moment of the service is doing something to us. So we pray that through your power, through your sanctifying work, that you would orient us, the people of God, into your vision of the good life, that faithfulness is a natural outflow as we walk in obedience with you. So God, just as we declare, we need you. Oh God, we need you. We need to be rooted in you. We also need each other. So God, I pray that we would be a people to faithfully commit to this incredibly counter-cultural act in this space for your glory and your kingdom. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.